We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is liberation between death and rebirth. My guest is Robert Thurman, who is Professor Emeritus at Columbia University where he was a teaching professor for about 50 years on Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies. He is a leading worldwide lecturer on Tibetan Buddhism, skilled translator of Tibetan Sanskrit Buddhist literature, and a passionate activist for the plight of the Tibetan people. He was a Tibetan Buddhist monk for a short time and became a Tibetan Buddhist lay teacher. Robert is a close friend with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He is co-founder and president of Tibet House U.S. Menla, the cultural center in service of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the people of Tibet. He is host of Bob Thurman podcast, Buddhas Have More Fun. He is author of many books, including Why the Dalai Lama Matters, His Act of Truth as a Salvation for China, Tibet, and the Whole World, and Infinite Life, Awakening to the Bliss Within. He is co-author of Man of Peace, The Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet, and Love Your Enemy, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. His most recent book is Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Today we'll be discussing his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, Liberation Through Understanding in the Between. Robert is located in the New York area. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Bob. It's a great pleasure to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Nice to be with you, Amy. The last time we met, we talked about wisdom is bliss and how people can learn more about Buddhism with four friendly fun facts. Let me link to that interview in the upper right corner of your screen. And today we're going to be discussing your translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And you share that actually that title is a mistranslation. Right. Yes, it's a book of natural liberation by learning something new during the between state mm -hmm. or transition, you know, after death. And they meant the main between state they were thinking about is are the three between states after death. And uh, they are not necessarily thinking about, and people don't usually think about the between states during life, which are also you can learn things during that time and then you can find a natural liberation. Liberation through connection to nature. That means, you know, natural means. What are we liberating from? Suffering. That's the only thing we need to liberate from. Nobody needs to liberate from happiness. We have to enjoy it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Although there's a kind of happiness that is unsatisfactory, 
because the person is not enjoying it really because they're thinking while they're while they're experiencing it that it's not good enough it's not going to last etc cetera, etc cetera. you know they're worried about and anxious about the other things and their mind is not really open to letting it sort of carry them away and so that kind of happiness is it's, it's good to be liberated from the happiness that really is what we call the suffering of change Mm-hmm. And um, in other words, experience cha- experiencing change as if it were suffering, and um, that's no good. But the happiness that where you give yourself to whatever it is, you give you know you get out of yourself, you, you enlarge yourself, you get you expand yourself, you transcend your normal sense of self enclosure. Uh, that kind of happiness is the one that you don't need to be liberated from. But once you're liberated, that's the one you experience. Can one be liberated during our incarnation as a human, or is it more likely to be liberated in the between, which is also known as the bardo, between death and rebirth? We can be liberated in our ordinary life as human because we are in a bardo now, according to this teaching, to this, which is actually not really a religious teaching. It's more like a scientific evaluation of life. And what the, the the bardo we're in now is called the bardo of life, where we're constantly growing, changing, and or decaying and <laughs> changing, but we're alive. And within that, there are two other betweens. The, the, the second one is the dream between, which is a, a between, and the between means it's a gap or a, a, a transition between deep sleep and becoming awake again. That's the dream between. And then the other one is the meditation between, where we we get into an altered state by meditating. Uh, and that's the speed between normal waking consciousness and returning to normal waking consciousness, but now newly enhanced by having gone into an altered state through meditation. So those are the three life betweens that said. Then the death between the bardo that people normally think of as the bardo, like when Lincoln was talking to his departed son. Lincoln in the Bardo, that recent popular book, which I haven't read yet. I've been it's on my list, but I didn't get around. But I it's very, I'm sure, heart very moving. Because believe me, I think about Lincoln all the time nowadays. He's so he was so wonderful, so brave. And uh, anyway, um, so the three in the death are the death point between the first shock, you know, of le- of changing bodies, of leaving this body. And then there's what's called the reality between, which are looking at all heavenly realms and different possible destinations. And then the third one is called the procreation between, when one comes decides to come back as a living being with some sort of parents, either in a womb for a mammal, in an egg for birds and reptiles and things, or chickens. Uh, in um, by apparition in a heaven where you don't need a womb or an egg, uh, or in some very negative, there are some very negative states where you, there's no question of wombs, like hellish type of states. And um, so that's called the procreation between, because that's when that's about to happen, so to speak. One comes back into the life between. So in other words, it's an endless cycle of six betweens, <laughs> mm-hmm. is how it's, how it's, which is an evaluation of life, you know. Right. We're like that. So in your translation of, of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it seems to predominantly talk about how when a person seemingly dies from this incarnation, 
right. that you can communicate with them and assist them to liberate while they are、yes. in that state. Yes, absolutely. the The view is that when you leave your body, in most cases, there some might be some cases where you're instantaneously elsewhere, but in most cases, when you leave your body, your subtle body, like sort of like the kind of body you have when you have a dream, you know, where you do, you're not sure quite what your body is, and but you're certainly aware of your environment and so on. But at first, you are very aware of where you were, and even you are you are sort of, you know, they have movies where they show that there, and, and it's like the subtle body is looking at a, at their body and saying, "Why am I? Why am I over here? Why am I not there?" <laughs> and、uh, sort of having an out of body experience, and then they will try sometimes to go back into the body, and which won't work, and. They also then try to like in that great movie Ghosts、mm-hmm. with Patrick Swayze and written by Bruce Rubin. You know your loved ones, and you know in his case he knew his murderer, and he was trying to influence things in the coarse body world, what they call the or gross body world or coarse body world. But he was unable to because they didn't know they couldn't perceive him, except for Whoopi, you know. <laughs> she she was a psychic, and she some psychics can see them. You know, but most people can, and、um, and then you get you. That's how you discover that you have passed away, because you go up and try to say, "Hey, is everything all right? What happened to your loved ones or your friends?" And then they don't they don't react, and you sort of walk through them, or they walk through you. You know, and you suddenly, oh, this is not this is not my normal me. You know,、mm-hmm. and、uh, that sort of phenomena they claim. Now, the the basis of the book. Is that the basis of the teaching in the book, and it's taught in many other books as well? But that's the famous one.、And、the basis of it is people who developed a kind of more sophisticated and detailed self-awareness. So, for example, they became able to be lucid in a dream, in dreams, where they know they're dreaming, but they still stay in the dream, and they, you know, they're more agile in moving around in their consciousness. You know, they because they've been using that work. You know, they've been yogis or yoginis, as you would, if you will, and、um, uh, they are reporting. This is based on the reports of people who remember these transitions from having undergone them, and they, they like you know now we did nowadays we have the literature of the near death experiences, and if you compile that, like Elizabeth Kubler Ross and some other people. They kind of have compiled those as more and more of them are, and since they they're all more happening all the time, and they have a kind of picture of it. And、um, did I tell you when we talked before that about this doctor that I know, I just getting to know a new friend who we were、yeah. talking when we were、um, first hanging out. I told you that story. I think so, but go ahead. Well, his name is Alan, but I I, I don't want to say his whole name because he didn't he didn't authorize me to. But he and his wife were having dinner with me and my wife, and we were just chatting, you know, getting to know each other. And since you know he knows I'm sort of interested in these things, he said, "By the way, I wanted to, I've been wanting to tell you that I died when I was 16, and、uh, came back from that." And then he described the experience, and、um, and and it did it did seem to, to me to explain his sort of wonderful character and his persona. Um, because it's well known in those near-death experience people, 
that when they have that happen, then they live life in a very different way because they are not scared of death anymore and so on. And what he said was he was um, he was leading a group in Guatemala as a 16-year-old of kids on a hiking from a, it was a church program that he was a member of a evangelical church, quite uh, orthodox one. And so he volunteered that summer and he was leading a group of Guatemalan teenagers from the city out in the country and so on. And then he sort of got caught in a near a volcano in a quicksand made of volcanic ash. His body was dragged under and died. And they had to make quite effort to get him out with the cranes and you know, it took time. Mm. And he was really quite dead. You know, when his body itself was dragged back to wherever and they were, you know, to a campsite or something. And um, some hours, you know, clearly. He didn't give me an exact time, but obviously a long time. But he said, meanwhile, he wasn't involved in any of that at all. He was he was flo- floating down a river of luminous bliss, he said, mm-hmm. happy as a clam in a way, and with no fear and no sense of loss or anything, grief of any kind. And then he came to a kind of like a station, like a subway station, because you know, like, he was coming down a kind of tunnel, which was flowing in this blissful energy. And then who was in the station but Jesus? Of course, he was a you know a faithful young Christian, his family and everything. And there was Jesus. And Jesus said to him, so, gee, you know, you're so young, you know, but, you know, that's the way it is. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, and here you continue on this way and signaled him sort of a new flow that was also looked very nice. And so he wasn't scared or anything. And that was the thing. But then he said, was he was kind of crossing that clearing with were in the presence of Jesus. He had a regret, uh, not fear and not pain or anything, but just a regret. And so he expressed it. And he said to Jesus, well, gee whiz, you know, I'm, of course I'm totally happy and I'm so thrilled to see you. And um, this is wonderful here. But, you know, I'm, I, was, I didn't get to do some number of things I had really planned to do back in, life, in my life. And I don't know. Is there is there is there any choice involved? You know, could I could I could I change my mind now or change the thing? And then, and then I don't know why, but I when he said then Jesus sort of glanced, but he, for some reason I got the, he didn't say that, but I got the impression like Jesus looked at his 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 uh, guest book or something, his, his iPad, or <laughs> glanced at it and said, "Well, it's been quite a while." You know, meaning they've been out of the body. It might what have happened to it. You know, something maybe it's been a while. He said previously he had said, "Well, it's so early," you know, because you're young. But he said it's quite a while, and then sort of hesitated, and then looked up at him and said, "Well, I guess so. If you want to, you go ahead." And sort of zoop. He didn't. There was no backflow. He just was immediately revived up from his in his body, just like instantly. Oh wow! Uh, and everybody there was like scared because he'd been. His cold, you know, his body was cold, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he'd been gone for some, not not breathing for hours, and but he revived, and so he just wanted to tell us that that, you know, uh, because he was at our retreat center, Menla Retreat Center here in Phoenicia, in New York, and uh, where we have classes on spirituality type of things, you know, but it's not a Buddhist center; it's a health, healing, well-being spa, mm-hmm. you know. We we are from the Dalai Lama's group. 
which does not, um, uh, we're his cultural preservation organization and cultural sharing organization. And under his theory that he doesn't want in the modern period religions to compete with each other to convert people back and forth. He's against that. So he's asked us to represent what Tibetan culture is because he wants it to be saved, of course, because the communists are destroying it in Tibet, have been for 70 years. Uh, So he wants to be saved, but he doesn't want to convert. So we're not teaching people to be Buddhists, in other words. Mm. We're just teaching like like an interesting cultural thing, like because it changes things, you know. For example, at a funeral, I was just at a funeral of a wonderful Mexican-American gentleman who had worked for that spa where we work for like washing dishes, actually, for about 20 years. And he had retired about four years ago. And uh, but then he and then he passed away. And um, and then I discovered when we got the news that he had passed away, Ausencio, his name, when we discovered that we realized that his two groups, two out of his grandchildren, however many there are, were also working for us. And we knew we knew who they were. We didn't realize they were his grandchildren. And his wife and sister had worked for us also for quite a while for that spa, you know, Dalai Lama spa. And um, so we felt, so we went to the funeral, you know. But and and I told the wife, I said, "Well, I know you're not a Buddhist, and you don't have to agree, but or believe that. But I just thought you might enjoy the idea that, you know, from our view, he's fine. He was such a wonderful. He had the most beautiful smile. He was, of course, he was just washing dishes. He didn't speak English much, but he, and he was newly probably newly arrived twenty thirty years ago." But uh, he was a very wonderful person. And I realized when I went to the wake, there was like 80 people there. So he he was beloved by many people, much bigger than his family. And um, so I was, but when he was working there, he would come out to collect dishes or something in the dining hall. And he would smile and he would lift a room. You know, he was like that kind of person, although he didn't speak English. So, So anyway, so I told her, you know, I'm sure he's fine. His, you know, his generosity and his happiness and his sharing of that with people and his whole family and all the people here. But you don't have, you know, you you also think maybe he's going to heaven and that's fine too. That's great. That's We all agree on that one. And she was smiling and happy about that. And, and so therefore, in, uh, funerals, in that culture, the most important person at a funeral is not the bereaved people, although they may be feeling deep grief and sad sadness, and that's perfectly all right, of course. They have to face that. But that's not the most important thing. In the immediate time after the transition, then uh, the person who's traveling is the main person. So, for example, in Tibet, if if a wife or a lo- beloved or a child or a parent is tearing their hair and weeping and wailing and shrieking, you know, and freaking out, then they ask them to take a walk and you know take some deep breaths and and save that for a later time after the person who's traveling is no longer so closely associated with the people she she or he used to know because it might alarm them because they're like in a dream they're emotionally very very sensitive so you want to make a very happy vibration you know like an irish wake people want to toast to the victim and so on, <laughs> so on. All right. Anyway, that reminds me of another story. I don't know if you want stories, but I think it's fun. I was traveling with Sam Keen, who was sort of famous Sam Keen, you know, men's movement, you know, the great Sam Keen, who's a theologian. He's a Protestant theologian from Harvard Divinity originally, but he's a great guy. He, he's a, he was a wonderful guy. 
And he was with me in Bhutan, and he interviewed a Jesuit priest who'd been there for 50 years, elderly gentleman. And he asked him, how many people had he converted to Christianity? And Father, I'm not remember the name, but anyway, Father Joseph, maybe Father Joseph, he said proudly, zero. <laughs> and and uh, Sam was a little bit shocked. Of course, he's a Protestant, not a Catholic, but not a Jesuit. But he still was shocked that, that the guy was pleased with that. And he sort of, it wasn't thought of as a failure, you know. And so then he said, well, why not? Why didn't you do that? And he said, well, they don't need to be converted. He said, they're already living with the Holy Ghost, the guy says. And then well, he was baffled by that Sam Keen. So as was I, I must admit, as I, who was overhearing this. I wasn't doing the interview, but I was a witness. So then he said, well, what do you mean? And then to illustrate that, he told a story of near his chapel, you know, his mission, there was a village. And he'd lived there for decades, and he was very friendly with the village elder. And the village elder sent him a message at some point saying, I'm departing soon because of my age. I'm going to pass away soon, but I want you to come for my final supper, you know, and we, I want to host you for my final supper. So great, he's preparing for that. And then he goes over to the village at the appointed time. And to his amazement, the village elder has died already, but his body is propped up in his chair, and this plate has been served to him, and he's got the seat of honor of the priest next to him, and is his and he's supposed to eat his plate, and everybody's eating and celebrating, and they're drinking. They're not Buddhists are not supposed to drink, but they are drinking some rice, rice wine, and um, he's just barley wine or something, and he's just shocked, you know, by it. At the time, he said, he's telling the story. And he said, so that's the thing. You see, he said, the, the spiritual world and their world are totally interfused, and they're not scared of, scared of it, although that means they were confident that this guy is going to go well, because he was a very wonderful and beloved head man. He was a virtuous person, in other words, generous and tolerant and not given to anger and, and, uh, and meanness and so on. So that was the father's um, father. So that's so it very much influenced the culture. In other words, this idea, and naturally we 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 grieve losing a loved one and so on. Especially the terrible thing a parent losing a child or some someone younger than you who you expected to carry on. That's the worst, of course, which does happen to people. And uh, but in general, that's and that, that, that it's not that people are supposed to suppress that, but it's that just that during the time close on like it was for a few days, you know, and, and especially like a funeral and memorial service. They think like 49 days, the person usually they have a sort of limit of when someone would remain in the immediate between, the death point between, so to speak, not be sort of wandering the universe looking for the different heavens, evaluating the new heavens. Uh, but they have that kind of thing. And then you can grieve and freak out and lament and, and face, you know, the sorrow, you know. But to to hold it in for a few for a few weeks, idea. It sounds like there are, like you said, many betweens. Can you share what death is then? Because really, we're not truly dying in the sense that we go into oblivion. Yes, well, that's the thing. What I was used to say when I first published this book, after doing the study involved with it, 
which I hadn't planned to do. I only did it because my guru said I should. Years before I was asked, actually. And so I had kept a book and was waiting. <laughs> then someone said, please do that. Commission me. And uh, it's my far my most popular book. And um, uh, I announced that the amazing thing I discovered, people would ask me, you know, doing a book tour, like, what about, what did you, what did you learn doing this book? And I said, well, what I learned is there are no dead people. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody dies. Deathlessness is what I learned. And what death is, is it's like, uh, okay, I'm in a room here in my house, in my study. And uh, if I want to go downstairs to see somebody or a visitor comes, I walk through a door. And when I get through the door, I'm in another room. And in a way, I'm never in the door. Because, because you, well, maybe you could say sort of I'm standing on the threshold. You can, you, we might say I'm in the door. But obviously, I'm not in the door. I'm just going between the two. And as you know, the line between the two rooms has no width. You know, line is an abstraction. And so you're really never on the line. You know, you just, you just move into the next room. And uh, so death is moving into the next life. Uh, and just like birth, actually conception from the Buddhist point of view, which, of course, is interesting to discuss in relation to the whole Catholics and the abortion and the whole thing. But anyway, conception is the rebirth, beginning of the rebirth in a mammal, in the case of a mammal. And um, uh, so we've come from beginningless previous lives. And also the idea is that it's beginningless and endless. So it isn't a matter, there's no state, you can't enter nothingness because there's no such thing. It's not a place you can go. <laughs> it's not It's not a dark space or something. Uh, nothing. Nothing is nothing. Right? Dark space is space. So this is beginningless and endless continuum. And the question then becomes how to be in a good continuum, in a good environment, where you're happy and you're able to make other beings happy and you're, it's not doggy dog, it's not war of all against all, it's not and human, is considered among the very best. Although it's not as pleasure-filled, as, or even it's not as vast in, in awareness, maybe, as some of the divine realms, the angel and divine realms. And there is no one super divine realm, like an ultimate absolute being, because all beings are relative. You know, anybody who's a being is, is being doing the being in relation to other beings. And so no one is a, is sort of an absolute source. The whole idea of absolute producing a relative is a kind of meaningless idea because absolute means it doesn't relate and you couldn't create something without relating to it. So, so in Buddhist, in the, in the, in the view of Buddhist science, not, not as a religious dogma, but in Buddhist science. I mean, and we have never, all, we ourselves, for example, have never experienced anything that isn't a relative thing. Because experiences are relating to the thing that we experience here. Except then you have abstractions like you a point. When I say I'm going to make a point on this piece of paper, I make a dot. And we that's XY, you know, in two planes, or XYZ in three planes, you know, and uh, and uh, fourth plane in time at a certain moment. But actually the dot I write right on the paper is not the point. The point is an abstraction and cannot have size to be precise, right? Because if I make a dot, it has a, uh, this right side, left side, this, that. It's a, small, it's a small circle. So those abstractions sort of seem to be absolute because 
in a way they're not there relatedly. And so we only indirectly relate to them, uh, right? By a dot stands for that, or the XY number stands for it, we say, you know, symbolic. So we can infer something absolutely, we can, because it's the opposite of a relative thing. So we can make an imagination about it, but it, it actually cannot be related to. So a real time is not anywhere, right? It's actually not there, you know, except in our concept. So that absolutes are sort of like that. And uh, therefore, they are kind of our own creations and they're inactive in Buddhist science and, and philosophy. Okay. So anyway, that's what I learned. There's no dead people. And so, uh, and and actually the great liberation involved about that is that when we know that, we stop worrying about some state of sort of absolute terror, uh, obliteration, whatever it is. We don't worry about that. Instead, we worry about the quality of where we are, what we're doing. And then we can, because we know that if we've been happy all day, we're unlikely to have a horrible nightmare, you know. So we know that if where we are now, that we sort of know we are, if we treat it well, treating others well, treat the environment well, treat everything well, treat ourselves well, then it's likely that if there's, when we wake up, we can then pass out to go to sleep. And we'll wake up, things will be okay. In the morning, we won't also maybe have too bad a dream. So we sort of know by experience that what you do in the present affects your future. Mm. And we become more responsible for that. And then we reach past death with that. And it's and it gives us a larger horizon of decision-making, you could say. And uh, and that's very considered practical and realistic. Mm. And, but it does, and, and it frees us from the sort of strange fear of death where it sort of lurks and we want to avoid it and we don't want to think about it and we don't want to talk about it and we want to act like it's not doesn't happen and then you know rich and powerful pharaohs and kings and people they make huge monuments to themselves you know they they get all worked up about it you know and um but meanwhile They'll have nothing to do with that. And probably in the next life, they'll be born in a different country or even on even another planet. From the point of view of Buddhist science, the, the idea of life on many Earths, in many galaxies, in many solar systems, etc., is very obvious, actually, rather than a mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. It was from thousands of years ago. They expected that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Right, because they saw the vastness. I mean, they looked out, you know. Why do we come here anyway if there's so much suffering? What is it that we can do here in the human form uh, as opposed to these other in-betweens? Right. Well, then you see, given the infinite frame of reference and the infinity of the future and the infinity of options, which doesn't mean in a way it's nothing concrete, but it just means we have to be open to possibilities. And uh, given that, uh, they reason that given infinite time, you can optimize everything. And the way you would optimize yourself would be if you could reach a state where you were completely satisfied yourself because of the way you just felt. And then you could share that with others with maximum effectiveness, although you couldn't push them into the same state because each person is kind of free. And actually that ultimate state is a free state. So, so they have to, in a way, you, you, they have to do it themselves, but you can help them a lot. It's like a coach, you know, 
coach cannot get out and play every part in the soccer game and, you know, kick the ball himself, but he can coach the players how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then they can become very capable. And so the idea is what the reason we are here is that we, and the reason that we suffer from Buddha's point of view is not necessarily because of sin. Although if we suffer really badly, it's because we did do negative things and we get blowback from that. You know, we harmed other beings, we destroyed things and we got kind of live by the sword, die by the sword. Everybody kind of has that view. You know, you get like that. You you know, you kill people, then you're scared they're going to come kill you, this kind of thing. And uh, you become paranoid. And um, so that we know. But the goal then is that you can become perfectly happy yourself and um, uh, you can discover the true nature of things. And then why Buddha is the person who became a Buddha, although there are many actually who didn't give themselves that name, but but um, the purpose who famously became a Buddha and made the, made the beginning of that teaching 2,500 years ago, um, he... Uh, he discovered that reality itself is pure goodness. It's like that guy was on that river of pure bliss once he left his body because of his openness and his faith in the saving power of the ultimate. You know, even though Buddhists would disagree that that Jesus was the son of an absolute being, they would agree that there is such a divine, wonderful, kind being who as Jesus that they would certainly agree uh they just wouldn't make it an absolute thing but it would be just a really great relational thing helping others and so because he had that openness of mind and faith he discovered an energy of goodness in the world and this is what in the book of the natural liberation slash book of the dead what they call the clear light of the void or the which and by clear light they don't actually mean a bright light they mean they mean he said luminous, you know, in his exp- dis- description, my friend Alan. But um, it's a transparency, like crystal, you know, like a, a diamond doesn't have an inner light bulb in it, but it transmits and intensifies light when it shines through it, and so it's a transparent thing like that. It's a crystal thing like that, and then there are lights that are lesser lights, like sunlight and moonlight which can be quite powerful. But the, but the original clear light is beyond the duality of light and dark. And what I always like to try to explain to people, you know, people think the materialists tell you that when you die, you're going to be nothing. And people in our country, uh, maybe they when they're young and feeling good, they're kind of scared of that. They feel like, oh, gee, that's death and that's obliterating. And I think subconsciously they associate it with, we, we, I, me too, we associate it with deep sleep in a dark room. So it's like you're just unconscious in a dark space, sort of. I think that that sort of seems to confirm that we're going to be a final sleep. And all those cemeteries have heavenly rest and peaceful sleep and divine sleep, you know, like they have names like that. That, of course, is irrational. Completely, and there's because there's no evidence that it, that there's such a thing as nothing that you can go to. <laughs> a dark space is not nothing, and um, we've never seen nothing. Therefore, so we can have no. We don't have any real solid expectation that there will be such a thing, even though we tend to think if we have a word for something that it must refer to something. 
And uh, so the idea is, and uh, the Buddhist science says that, that when you leave the body, you descend through a series of stages that are, they call the eight stages in the book of natural liberation. So there are other versions that have 10 stages. You could probably have more if you wanted to make it too complicated, but eight main stages. And the bottom, the five, six, and seven of those are a moonlit space, a sunlit space, and a darklit space. And a midnight dark, you know, no sun, no moon, no stars, nothing, just total dark. And um, that that's the threshold of clear light, which is so, so that in a way, clear light is what we're already made of, they say. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we don't see it as an object, but we kind of get, we, are, we have a feeling of being immersed in it, which mm-hmm. I think was what happened to Alan. But he was then feeling he was separate from it and enjoying it. So he was really in one of those other, like the moonlit stage, I would say, actually, really, rather than quite, because clear light, he was in clear light while alive. We all are, according to their view. But we're not aware of it. Yeah. There's, there's a, in other words, what, what reality sustains us in reality and what sustains reality is a field of infinite energy, put it like that. That seems to make sense to us. And, and then if we stop to think, we think, oh, infinite energy then would not be doing anything on its own because it would feel everything was already fulfilled. Everything was done. It was perfect as is infinite energy you know there's it was no need it was, there's no differential like where there's something low energy so the high energy flows toward it but on the other hand if there's a being who somehow doesn't know about that infinite energy and they feel whatever their sphere of experience is they're lacking a lot of energy or they're lacking this or that they can draw on this inexhaustibly is the idea so it is actually quite similar, you know, a deeply faithful monotheistic person who feels that God is love, God is good, God is pure light, blah, 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 whatever different kinds of praise, you know, like adulatory expressions can be thought of, and a lot of them have been. In a way, they, they are thinking of clear light from a Buddhist perspective. It's just that there, and, then, and when I say that, I, every time I say that, I know people are thinking religious perspective, but it's not just a religious dogma. It's, it's what they discovered. They, they think they may be wrong, but that's what they think. So it's not something belonging to some other person than you. You're the same, actually. You're, you're all made of clear light, so to speak. And so we can kind of relax in a way. It's, it gives a different notion of a default reality. We're used to being when we fall asleep, we're nervous that is the door locked? Is it quiet? You know, is it dark? You know, is there, are the covers warm? You know, nice soft pillow. You know, so we're always careful and worried about things that might happen to us. But, but in a way, the final home of us is this vast, uh, like divine or Buddha mind, you know, is the idea. Sort of like what the Protestant theologians would call the pantheistic heresy. Where you feel you are God, do you know what I mean? You're God. You're immersed in God, which I think mystics have always had, and and the more rigid type of monotheist has persecuted them for that. Therefore, thinking it's some sort of pride, or they're they're mm-hmm. off base, or they make crazy, or whatever, because they have this idea that it's there's a being that's like a big judge or king, 
that doles out a reward if you're nice and punishes you violently if you're not. And uh, that is sort of up to the other being, and you have no power to influence that. But if you feel you are that God, then in being God, how are you relating to those around you and so forth? You know, it then becomes more key to you rather than what you're getting from someone, you know. Right. So that's uh so that's the kind of vision. And I'm so excited. I love my new physicist who I haven't met yet, but I hope I will soon, whose name is Carlo Rovelli, who just wrote a wonderful book called White Holes. So he sort of is intimating that beyond the black holes where which sort of fits with the idea of death as a black hole. You're in there and you're obliterated. You never get out. You're imprisoned in some crushing situation, which sounds very hellish, really. But but he, but, but they turn into white holes. Mm. So clear light is the ultimate white hole, of course. Mm-hmm. And then black holes may be just part of a cycle of things being contracting and expanding. But even as massively contracted as they are, they're still... Beneath that is this bed of infinite energy, and or really permeating it is a bed of infinite energy, and it's just a compression of mass and so on. You know, Einstein also was close to that with his idea that the speed of light is an absolute, only because the concept of speed no longer had meaning. The reason that it's an absolute, he said, is that its mass becomes infinite at that speed. So in a way, by thinking about a kind of a kind of um, threshold beyond which things are infinite, he was touching that. But because he was, because of the Western Enlightenment, which I think is Enlightenment, I'm, I love it, but they got dogmatic about there not being spirit, soul, and mind, which was, that's not Enlightenment, that's crippling their investigation of things by a dogma which they tried to break away from the church's dogma, but then they made a new dogma that there's no mind and no spirit, just the brain is doing something, creating an illusion. And uh, But by touching speed of light as sort of the absolute, because it, then it's everywhere, so it has, doesn't need to speed anywhere. He's sort of getting close to the sort of paradoxical possibility of what we call clear light, or mm. transparency is what I like to call it, actually because it, it's more mysterious, you know. And uh, so that's that's the basis of the whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that in the, in the Book of Natural Liberation, they keep telling you, and you, you've been studying it wonderfully, and they keep telling you, well, now if you really open your mind and heart, you're going to be liberated, which means you're going to feel immersed in clear light. So you will stop worrying, you will stop fearing anything, you will feel completely satiated and satisfied, filled with energy, in other words, and um, good energy, uh, which is peaceful energy. It's powerful, but peaceful. You know, It doesn't shake you up and stir you around in some way. And, um, and, uh, and that's liberated, but, and it leaves people with the dualistic idea that that's, they sort of escaped from life. Hmm. That is there in the tradition, in the sense that in teaching some people, the Buddha felt it was too much to tell them, well, you're already clear light, everything is already fine, whatever, but it's just that you don't know that you are. And so you're creating an artificial place of suffering for yourself. But and some people can cope with that, although it puts your mind into a funny situation. 
but uh, but many can't, and so they, especially very sensitive ones. So they so they have to feel there's they want to go to an absolute away and be absolutely free of pain, you know, because they were. But they're not, and they're not thinking that a relative thing cannot experience an absolute. They can only theorize about it, but they it's because absolute means it's not related. Mm. Yes. So therefore, there's no way you can plunge into it and so forth. The only way you can there can be an absolute loving energy, meaning completely giving energy, would be if you're already it. Actually, without and then you're running around feeling you need things because you don't know that. You know, right. you're immersed in it. It's like the fish, fish in the water, right? Doesn't know that it's in water or something. Yeah. So that so that's that's the idea. So I it's I I really loved it because makes sense to me. And um, I think uh, it is better science from my point of view, which is what I was looking for that I didn't find in the West. And I didn't want to have blind faith in something that didn't make sense to me. And um, I think there's a difference between something that seems irrational and something that is maybe transcends a sense of being able to capture it with your thinking. So sort of experience it like, for example, when you eat an apple, there's no way you can fully a good delicious one. You can't describe every aspect of the experience. You can write a poem about it and you can do a chemical analysis of your taste buds and a neuroscientific analysis of the experience of eating an apple. None of it completely capture the amazing experience of eating an apple. So in a way that in itself, it isn't just nirvana is un, you know, ineffable or indescribable. Life is indescribable, finally, you know. But that's it. But it's not irrational to eat an apple. Mm-hmm. If you eat a poisoned apple, that would be irrational, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. You have to experience it. And as you're speaking, it makes me think about how people have attachments, right? We have attachments to yeah. our loved ones. We have attachments yes. to our smartphones, our computers. <laughs> yes, yes, we're all cyborgs. Being in nature. So I think when people think of death and when they have a loved one and then their body is not animated, they can't communicate with them the same way, it's very much a loss. So what does this natural book of liberation share about how we can do we lose a connection to our loved ones? Do they? Does that remain? What happens with what we hold dear in our lives? Right. Well, the the book of natural liberation does not um, doesn't really develop its own underlying spiritual practice necessarily. In other words, th- that one has to do with true love versus greed. In other words, true love, as defined by the Buddhists, is where you really will the happiness of the beloved. And it has no selfish element of you want to have it requited. You want the beloved to love you. That's self, That's sort of more self-centered. And um, so the idea is that you will be loving and you will enjoy your beloved when you and you can be still loving them, wanting them to be happy. But in a way, your your attachment is not the one where you want them to love, be in love with you, and you want them to be your possession, so to speak. That's that's not you. You love them, and you you know that be, you're happy when you feel free, and so do they. So the ideal of love is 
love no matter what to the beloved you know not not dependent or conditional upon them um responding you know so so that already lessens the clinginess about attachment and the and the mixed greed and domineering and insecurity thing and that's what one is supposed to work on and the, precisely because the ideal is that reality itself is the free energy <laughs> and i always use with people at our at our wellness spa we have a, a patented but of course it isn't patented a sleeping yoga we call it where i urge people to use the inference that when they're tired at night and uh, you know they because they've been doing some practice all day or they've been working all day or they've been whatever yeah. they do all day and they're happy to be unconscious and then it's almost like be nothing because i just couldn't hold up the world anymore i can't keep pursuing it and then they feel better in the morning so that means that they're not lying in a dark space of nothing that there's some something that came in and filled up the cells filled up their something and they feel stronger and I digested their food and you know and, and kept you know take cooking of course they're breathing and they keep taking in oxygen but somehow also other things they feel much better about so someone is sharing energy with them when they sleep and so that's the but but the point is they're not really open to they're, they're supremely open to that sharing when they sleep because precisely they're not thinking about guarding their boundaries once you collapse into your pillow and pull the covers up it's all quiet and don't bug me and <laughs> you are your everything is open so you're completely vulnerable defenseless but also sort of all your tubes all your intakes are open and therefore that infinite and then that infinite energy automatically then flows into somewhere where there's a deficiency mm -hmm. and a defect which is why we so much do need to sleep a third of our lifespan we've been sleeping mm -hmm. because we are in this boundary between that a clear light and then when we try to carve off a space within it that's just for us because we think that has to be because that's more real you know and um so so that's the thing i think so so we have the idea is uh precisely for example in the death point between keep it in the book of the dead context or the book of natural liberation context when you first go you know when your soul mind and body the soul has a little body like a subtle energy body there's always there's always the physical support and the mental guider you know the supported in life and there's a subtle level of that which is the bridge between the brain and the senses and the coarse body and then there's a subtle body which is central nervous system amazing thing that human beings have evolved totally amazing and and each individual human being has involved that over many lives and it's a little bit different from darwin and this which is which all relates to the species evolving it so intelligent and yet vulnerable and sensitive and so on and uh, and uh, and that's the bridge to the soul super subtle soul mind and soul body which is the one that then rises in a dream and even in the process of life and also rises from the body of death but the first moment when the when the soul that soul mind is not working through the central nervous system and not working through the five senses 
uh, and the mental sense that coordinates them, then uh, it suddenly feels vastness. And then it was attached to that body. So then people could struggle. They want to get back into it because they they thought that was a secure way to be if they were living without relatively without pain. They're not calling Jack Kevorkian. <laughs> it's what they do when they're in terrible pain. They don't want to get back in. But otherwise they feel very... So then they're trying to urge in the book of the natural liberation, don't freak out. This clear light, this vast, infinite vastness is your mother. And you know your awareness of it is your is your is the father of your further existence, so you're connected to the mother and the father, you know, and you're in you're in their lap, you're kind of in their embrace, you're in in a feeling of deepest love, and uh, and that's and they want you to reach where you you are just wide open to the love of the universe. They want you to trust, to have confidence, to have faith, and to be embraced by the loving universe. Mm -hmm. Just as just as the really, truly deep, mystical monotheist feels, well, there's all this story about you have to, if you're bad, you get punished, and Dante's Inferno, and blah, 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 and I'm so scared, and all this. But the really deeply, no, God loves me, you know, and then the, Jesus, or Krishna, or there are all these sort of bodhisattva symbols of angels mediating between the idea of the universe being the more powerful thing in the universe is the love. So that's a good sign. That's why Dalai Lama likes monotheism, but he doesn't like it when because he doesn't like the aspect where some people, by attributing omnipotence, omnipotence to some other being, and then they become authoritarian, and then they think, if they recite the name of that being, they can go and kill everybody who doesn't agree with that name and do horrible things, which are completely not what that ultimate reality wants. Because that ultimate reality is sustaining the sweetness of connection and life and interconnectedness. You know? And that, that's what it likes, you know. Doesn't like it, does it, it, it? The pure good energy of the clear light doesn't want beings to suffer. Yeah. It's not a person that dislikes anything. It's pure love in that sense. If love means whatever the beloved wants that makes them happy, that's what they should have. If that's what it means, then that's what reality wants. If you make it a, something that wants, it wants everybody to share its infinite energy. In your book, you share that the pure land is in your heart, within the four directions and its center, the wisdom inside you, they do not come from anywhere else. Yes, that's really, that's nice. That's like, that's the quantum people have a concept of non-locality, that things are not located here and not there, you know, at some deep, subtle level, you know, but they're, they're, they're kind of cruising around this area because, because if you examine reality, including the subtle layers of mental reality, and you can, I dare say, spiritual or soul reality, then you everybody finds the same things because that's what's real. Mm -hmm. you know? And the scientists are right on the brink because of quantum. Before that, the attachment to the, the attachment to materiality was very absolutist, connecting to imperialism. That if you want to own all the real estate, you want to control everything, you have omnipotent God is on my side, you know, this kind of thing. That part is is has caused problems, hasn't it? Said for about 5,000 years, we've had patriarchal 
militarized, violence-dominated societies based on the idea that there's a violent absolute that is pushing us to do that. And uh, Buddha was a rebel against that. And all the mystics of all the world traditions, I think, pretty much did very often. They were they were executed by, for that in many in many more rigid cultures, more orthodox cultures. But in but India, see, India got had yoga, and India has all happy things. But Christianity has also brought happy things. Moses also brought happy things. Muhammad did. Their traditions have been distorted on and off as have the Asian ones by kings, usually, and some high priests who were in league with kings, to frighten people that they needed somebody else protecting them. Mm -hmm. But the reality is really dangerous, and it could be bad, you don't know, you know. So then that's when people get really scared, you know. Mm -hmm. Then the materialists dominated, actually, now, trying to move beyond that in a way by saying everybody becomes nothing. But then it has a negative side there is that, well, then nothing matters. So I can do whatever I feel like. And uh, I can hurt anybody, grab anything, just grab for the immediate uh, activity. And uh, that's just not turning well out well now. Mm-hmm. Planet doesn't like it. And from a Buddhist perspective, we're all interconnected? Yes. And so for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Mm. It does. Today is such a sad. It's such a sad time, you know. We everybody wants uh, the Russians to be happy, the Ukrainians to be happy, the Palestinians to be happy, the Israelis to be happy. No reason why they can't be. I think. I think we really have to get past these people who desire omnipotence themselves, which are these either dictators or wannabe dictators who want to just do whatever they want, no matter who gets hurt. And they're, and they're, basically they are one group, and, and they are to be very pitied even, because their pseudo is causing so much damage that, that that's why I think really democracy is really the right thing. We have to hand that to the Athenians, and actually, in a lesser extent, to Buddha and to Jesus, the idea that Everybody, everybody kind of has a divine right to be free. Mm-hmm. And people shouldn't enslave each other, harm each other, dominate each other. And then people in history who want to conquer everything in these conquest cultures and these violent things uh, are no longer tolerable now that we, we have discovered so much about reality that our weapons are so powerful you know, it's not just some people in a knife fight outside of a bar. It's like nuclear weapon fights. You know, they should have woken up to that fact. And so, therefore, there have to be safeguards, guardrails, where one loony person cannot dominate the lives and harm so many people. These pyramidal, you know, social structures with a with a with a top, you know, pharaoh, like divine, practically divine right of kings, dictator sitting on top of it, you know. And we know who they are. I don't have to mention any names. And they're on every side. And they 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 need each other. They like each other. Because they, the, the enemy gives them a way of trying to persuade their people to let them to, to dislike that enemy and not dislike the dominating dictator, mm-hmm. you know. Like, like uh, and so they won't stop their war because they know if they stop, they'll be thrown out. 
Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so actually, when we say we're for them all, that means it's like, you know, helping the Ukrainians is helping the Russians because the Russians are not thriving except for a few oligarchs. They're not thriving under this dictatorial thing. They, in fact, they're, they live, they're, they're very, if you look at the number of hospitals, the number of schools, their economic situation of the regular people, the creative people, it's terrible in the last 30 years since it was bad already. That's why the Soviet Union collapsed. And then it's, there was an opening. And then they, then the same domineering people got all the wealth and still use the same crushing power, you know, and they, and crushed the democracy within 12 years, you know. And it's not the Russian people are genius, brilliant people. Tchaikovsky, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, they're wonderful people. And uh, and there's no reason for them to be so intolerant of other people having a cheery time in the European Union. <laughs> Perhaps they need a few more, well, maybe hopefully not too many, but uh, possibly reincarnations or it demonstrates some of their or a lot of their attachments, perhaps. That's the thing. See, the reincarnation thing also is, if someone dies in a violent way, say someone dies because they're bombed with their family. So they die seeing their children, their beloved wife, their beloved parents, their beloved brothers and sisters dying at the same time. They're going to die with tremendous anger against whoever dropped that. So there is a real likelihood and danger that they'll be reborn in, as the child of the dictator who pulled the trigger, mm. the grandchild, and they will be very angry. Then somehow they'll be destructive in that society. It was the one that dominated them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very likely. I mean, there'll be a strong drive to do that. They may fail, but there'll be a strong drive. So, so they have uh, in the Indian literature. They have well, you kill your enemy, and then he's after you next life. It comes mm-hmm. back. Mm. Life, there's no place of an absolute ending. You know, mm-hmm. get out of my universe. No, it doesn't work like that. Nobody does. And if you're really harmful to others, they'll get after you sooner or later. Yeah, and as as people continue to liberate through different in betweens or reincarnations, then what happens? What happens when we? Yeah, well, what happens? You know. I know, um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know well, I met about 25 years ago a Hungarian journalist when Hungary was opening and happy, you know. And um, um, he said that we Americans didn't realize in the sort of Eastern Europe tribal thing, you know, that, that with the nuclear, in the Cold War, with nuclear power, superpower standoff, that there hadn't been another nuclear war since 1945. We didn't realize that was something miraculous because everybody, you know, the males have to have wars every spring in Eastern Europe. You know, there's a boundaries, you know, they've, they've been battling for many centuries, you know, and even the European Union, therefore, is kind of miracle. French and Germans, you know, they've been at it and English and French, you know, King Henry V, you know, once more into the breach. <laughs> So it's very much like that. And so the Asian ones actually have been a little less so, in fact, in history, the recent history, because precisely there is this different spirituality there. More, more open. The mystics weren't killed off, you know, mm. as much as in the West. The mystics were more sent out their vibe. So, but the, so the point is, it was wonderful modern time that we're in now, 
where we could see everybody. We could see their faces. And when people are about to kill other people, they start looking really ugly. They have a they're snarling kind of expression. And that's what we consider that. Anybody considers that kind of an angry face ugly. And smiling, happy, genuinely, internally happy, smiling face is going to be not harmful. We There can be a deceiving smiling face, yes. But mostly smiling face is different. And we see that. So, so the, you know, the... The, the the Hitler types are not hiding in bunkers. They're on TV all the time. And there and there is the presumption that really people should have a say in what they do. You know? And then if they're either corrupting the democracy or they or they or they're pretending that it doesn't for example, the empire the dictator of China right now and the communist which is the Communist Party, they're depending they're they're pretending that Chinese have always liked dictators. The emperor was a big dictator. He was not. That's a distortion of Chinese history. Mm-hmm. The first bad dictator in China, the one who built the wall, mm-hmm. was a paranoiac called the Yellow Emperor. Mm-hmm. But he burned every single book of Confucius. Mm-hmm. All the Confucian books he burned, and that was before Indian Buddhism came and helped support Confucianism, which then they had for 2,000 years. So the way the emperor thing was defined, it was sort of like, like King Charles in England. With for all his difficulties in bopping and bipping at his coronation, there, he's not really a rock and roll type of guy. <laughs> he could not declare war on France and march over there at the head of an army. He, he's he's just a symbol. But that so so the English had made a lot of wars, but but uh, it's not like oh that's a Western thing they discovered democracy because the English was no they still got a king there, but he's just an ornament. He's like a movie star. You know, and that's what the Tibet Chinese was for hundreds, hundreds of years like that. They were sort of ceremonies, and he was like a priest or something. You know, in China, the emperor he couldn't. He had. They were all ministers. There was a huge bureaucracy that uh, decided what to do. You know, that was based on knowledge and reading Confucius, and Confucius was not into killing people. Mm-hmm. So, like, which is why he didn't have a good job with the at in the time he didn't get tenure. <laughs> Because the local local king that he advised, you know, he was like the sage, but he wouldn't. The king wouldn't listen to him when the king wanted to have a little fight or get some more territory or do do whatever he wanted to do. He wouldn't didn't want to listen to Confucius. So it's not true that the, that the, the whole fake idea of civilizational cultures and societies and Western democracy is 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 our like a colonial export and blah blah. That's that's totally fake. People everywhere want to be free, and especially they don't want a structure where one person in a bad mood and who's paranoid can mobilize huge destruction within their own country and their neighbors' countries. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the whole planet, they are destroying. The oil industry, the petropaths, I call them, they are destroying the entire planet with pollution and by filling the air with carbon. And the and then if they went into war, they have their hydrogen bombs, you know, and they will destroy everything, you know. So, Bob, so, how do we... Uh, well, we'd be happy. The way we do it is by being happy, mm-hmm. being active, actively happy. Mm-hmm. You know, like the lady in the Zoloft commercial, you know. And, uh, and, but, but we, don't take, we don't have to take Zoloft, although there might be, sometimes Zoloft can be helpful, something like that. But some medicine can be helpful. Uh, but um, 
what the medicine is is love mm. well and 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 being happy and counting our blessings and being grateful to those who are kind and being kind to others and uh, kindness is the medicine mm -hmm. and 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 kindness can you also have like you know uh, tough love fierce compassion when someone's alcoholic or something you don't just give them another bottle of vodka you know you get them to stop so there you know being loving that means sometimes you have to be strategic you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but you don't destroy point is mm -hmm. you try to save you know my fantasy would be you know if i if if an alien came to me with a big great spaceship and with beaming ability to transport transporter beam i would just fly around and i would transporter the lead dictators in all these societies that are that are sending in troops and bombing civilians and killing them with missiles and i would just beam them up and then when they would be beamed up they would go to a wellness spa and they would be required to stay there until they actually really felt well without destroying anybody yeah, you know not yeah. punishment in solitary confinement sorts of things no way massage therapy you know acupuncture <laughs> good food <laughs> good food that's right and friendly people you know bring up if their grandchild or granddaughter or daughter or ex-wife had tried to talk sense in them in the past if they didn't listen with their power obsession then those people would be enlisted to come and cheer them up mm. and they have to listen though they would have to listen mm -hmm. that's uh that's my fantasy way i think you know with the mass media and although they are abusing the, the social media too to to enforce craziness and spread anger basically it doesn't work because nobody wants to see anger really very small minority maybe 20 percent are still hung up they're so scared that they feel safe when they're shouting and screaming about somebody but nobody wants those shouters and screamers mm -hmm. they won't and uh, and any media that promote them by giving them too much airtime, they are blameable. Mm. You know, as as NBC exec, former executive, who was eventually thrown out for misbehavior with women, but he, I won't mention his name, LM or his initials, and he said that all the airtime he gave to some of the shouting and screaming on NBC was good for NBC, but mm. bad for America. He said. Yeah, they shouldn't. Do, they shouldn't do that. They, yeah. There's some control of that, and we will see to it. I know we will. All the nice people, new thinking people, will do that. <laughs> well, in the Buddhist deities that you mention in your book, maybe we can help mobilize them to that end. In that, all beings really yeah. do want for them, and no, 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 the Christian deities, the. Uh, the, the Muslim deities, the Hindu deities, the Jewish deities, they're all the same thing. And none of them actually, they all, none of them really want, you know, there's a wonderful sutra, uh, not in, uh, not famous in Tibet, but they know about it, but it's famous in, in uh, other Buddhist countries. The one, they have the sutra in Tibet, but it's not an important one for them. But anyway, they know the story where one yogi learns to travel psychically to heavenly planes and they go to the brahma who is considered the god who created the creator by in general the society at the time in buddha's time although buddha could and brahma says 
by the way, after some amusing exchange, um, Brahma says to him, go on earth to see that guy called Buddha and ask him some of these questions. He'll give you good answers. And then do me a favor and ask him from me to tell people that I'm not omnipotent. And therefore, when horrible things happen to them, not to blame me. Hmm. When good things happen to them, they can say, oh, thanks, thanks, Brahma, thanks, God, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> when horrible things happen, you know, horrible diseases, children being killed, war, pestilence, famine, etc. I don't like them blaming me because I, I would just stop it if I could. Mm. So they have their own responsibilities. We're all working together. It gets them. We all get out of balance. We we get you know, cycles of, of violence and vengeance, and that's not my wish for anybody. So I, I would like Buddha to tell them that. Don't blame God. <laughs> yeah, we have our own free will. Yes, we do, and uh, even a small thing we can choose. So you know, for example, blaming God for the Holocaust, like some famous people did then I'm sure God didn't like it. I feel very sympathetic to Yahweh. I like him. He's doing his best, you know. He's not asking to bomb babies, though. It's, it's not his, especially they believe in the same one. That makes no sense at all. That mm. They can't share their space, you know. They mm. believe in the same thing, really, basically. There's no religious difference between Buddhist Christians and Muslims at all, except something that made a difference by rulers to conquer each other. And have crusades and things, that's all. But there's no difference in the message. Mm-hmm. Message is be here now and be happy, like Baba Ram Das. <laughs> yes, yes. Back to love. When people pass, there's been reports of loved ones being there waiting for them. Have you found that that is the case? That a deceased, a previously very deceased part, loved very one definitely can possible. be there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I don't. I have actually had a few former life memories, but not so vivid. My wife has many more, mm. and uh, she's much more psychic than me. And even though I meditate and all this, but I haven't. I didn't. I'm too much. Uh, I've been too much of professoring for all these years. <laughs> so yak yak yak, you know. And I, I'm not that deep, but um, I'm sure. I mean, I, I've remembered enough to be definitely sure that it happens. And uh, definitely so. There's another wonderful set of books that I would recommend to people on this one that my wife always recommends, which is not the Tibetan book of natural liberation or book of the dead. It's an American one by uh, Michael Newton. Mm -hmm. It's called Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls. He wrote two books. As far as I know, he may have written more. But I I read those two. And at first I was grumbling because they're a little different from the Tibetan. (laughs) Because they're not, you know... Because it's in a Western cultural context. And, you know, like my other friends saw Jesus, fine. You know? And when I was younger, I was a little too, I was too like, uh, you know, uh, closed about other things. But I really like that now. And I think that shows that people come from somewhere. They come with a mission and a purpose in this life. And, the, and another thing which my wife always underlines is very good, which is that we as beings, are bigger than our one consciousness in our brain. And so we can be fully incarnated somewhere and yet also still be in some sort of celestial zone with sort of different, and not just maybe one soulmate, but some soulmates 
like a pod, like a pod of porpoises or something. Right. Dolphins you know, or whales, you know. And then we keep being born and reborn in relation to each other and also other people. And it's not absolutely fixed and eternal and blah, blah, blah. And of course, when you're Buddha, the whole, all, all life is your pod, you know. When you become enlightened, you do expand the amount of beings. When you fall in love with the universe as a whole, which is one way of defining attaining enlightenment. Mm. And, um, so I, I think I, those are very useful to Western people. The book I did, you know, what I'm most proud of in that book of natural liberation is actually not the translation, but it's the study of the death process and the way the Buddhist science presents it. And then the prayers are good for Buddhists. But, you know, and I tried in the translation, you know, when you might meet Buddha so-and-so or such-and-such a Bodhisattva, you know, in the after-death state, mm-hmm. uh, after you left the body, you might meet these, or the, and to be scared of those and love these, and don't be scared of those. You know, those kind of instruction. I try to say, well, meet Jesus. You're not going to meet Avalokiteshvara. You're not going to meet some being you're completely unfamiliar with. The loving nature of the universe will present you with someone from your own culture who has symbolized total love and total saving ability and total dedication and protective protection ability. And so plug that person in this part of the of the of the practice, you know, for yourself, you know. So I think that's really and and I could do that much more. I think I should, you know, but I could do a much fuller one that would use the but I expect people will in other traditions, like they'll have Krishna meeting. Some guy would be who died at 16 in India somewhere, helping some people, and he would meet Krishna in the clearing there before finishing the river of, of bliss, I, I imagine. So then they make a book of the dead where a book of the natural liberation where you meet Krishna afterwards, just because that's what he would expect to meet, you know. Meanwhile, the loving energy is infinite of multifaceted or God is omnipotent. It, if God is close to omnipotent, Brahma is powerful. And if they're close to powerful, they can manifest different personalities for the benefit of different people, whatever mm-hmm. someone needs. You know? And so, so that's what a, an ideal book of the natural liberation would be open-ended for people of whatever cultural persuasion to help look for the, the saving, the loving, the, the point of goodness. And my wisdom is bliss book point of that is that reality is bliss. That's that's the beginning to change things, you know. Even if you don't get this acre of territory and that river and this of this million metric tons of water, you don't have to kill a bunch of people to try to do that, because you can manage with whatever else you have, you know. Because the finally thing ever, there's enough for everybody. It's mm. an abundant universe. Right. Absolutely. And what we do to to one, we do to ourselves. Yeah. Imagine if all those oligarchs in Russia, well, many billionaires, I think, 37 trillionaires, practically, if they spent that money on the hospitals, on the universities, on the things, and then live for a couple million, that'd be fine. A couple million rubles, they can get along. (laughs) 50 million limit, and then let the people have it, share it. Then there's no, that's a huge country with rich resources. There's no plenty of room also. They could have like 200 million Chinese living there farming and there'd be even more vegetables. Yeah. You know, it's huge, you know. Yeah. I also like how at the end of your book, you mention how if people engage in these certain mantras or prayers that upon 
passing. Well, you mentioned earlier that people can attain liberation in this lifetime, but upon what we perceive as death, they can instantly be liberated as well. Definitely. Definitely. And and we all do attain liberation in life. You know, we graduate from school, you know, we're liberated from school and and then we're free to like be more active in the world than others, you know. Exactly. We're liberated from our bad temper, from our bad habits. We're liberated from our addictions with medicine. We're liberated from our diseases with medicine, etc. But you know, materialism is you know is too much making us rely only on material medicines and surgery. We have to make a medical system that is more preventive, goes in and cleans up the food system, the soil. And especially we have to stop the carbon pollution, you know, in the air. We really do. And uh, and we know everyone knows it, really. And the greedy people don't want to do it because they think they're making money as is. And that's it. That's all they care about. Meanwhile, what are they going to do with that money when the when the when the typhoon hits their gated community? You know, and the and the mudslide just completely wipes out all their fancy furniture. You know, it's mm-hmm. useless to them. Right. So they'll figure that out. Everybody will figure it out. We're just really getting we're a little bit last minute. That's all. Yeah. Okay. Bob. So thank you so much. Yes. Bob, thank you so much for being with me again for your dedication with helping people to be liberated and be more happy, loving, and kind to themselves and each other. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, I'm so grateful myself in that I was one of these driven wasp, you know, high achievement, got to get this, got to win that, got to do the other, and not bothering to smell the roses, not listening to the more gentle, nice people and so forth. And slowly I was able to discover and get a little bit less irritable, a little bit less selfish. And liberating from those things to even a small degree is liberation. Believe me, I know you know that actually yourself, of course. I'm, I'm preaching to the converted. I know that. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Yes. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You Absolutely. are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 